Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Tired of the grocery store? Looking to spice up dinners? HelloFresh delivers delicious ingredients and easy recipes straight to your door. Take $40 off your first box at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash fresh. You'll be enjoying cooking again in no time. You guys are in for an incredible episode because today, joining us is the founder of one of the most effective nonprofits I've come across. Barry LaForgia is a lawyer turned humanitarian as he founded International Relief Teams, a top-rated humanitarian nonprofit focusing on disaster relief and building healthy communities around the world. Now, with a staff less than 10, this may seem like a n- small nonprofit, but that would be quite a mistake as IRT has activated thousands of volunteers and provided over $300 million in aid globally. As we mentioned, this is one effective and powerful nonprofit. Barry, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Alexandra. Barry, you left a successful law and real estate practice in 1988 to found IRT. What inspires such a drastic move? Well, I happened to go on a mission trip with a, with a church. Uh, I was dating a woman in, North, in uh, Orange County, and we went down to the Amazon jungle. And I saw we were just doing construction work, helping people uh, who are coming in to learn to read and write their own language. But um, I had um, – I, something touched my heart that I felt like maybe I could do something more with my life. And, and when I got back, I started investigating nonprofit opportunities. And through that search, I eventually uh, found an organization that in the Northwest that helped uh, mentor me and helped me take the step to start international relief teams. Now, that's a big jump. What was the most kind of nerve-wracking aspect of moving from your successful law practice into nonprofit? Well, I think it was the fear of failure because I've never done this before. Um, when I had uh, gone to, you know, when I had become a lawyer, I'd gone to school uh, for three years and had, and, and, and did some uh, clerkships. So I would, I was preparing myself. I had some training for it. When I was a, when I was a pilot in the air force, I had a 13 months of pilot training. This was actually a movement of the heart. And I was going into an arena in which I knew nothing about and so it was, I think my fear of failure and whether I could actually do this was, was my biggest fear of, will I be successful or will I fall on my face? I'm so glad that you brought up the fear of failure because that is something that we all struggle with. And the other really cool thing that you touched on is particularly coming from a background in law, you're going from very logical. I've been trained to a very emotional space where this just pulled on my heartstrings. Absolutely right. And in fact, when I first started writing my first appeal, it sounded like a legal brief. And my staff looked at me and said, you got to warm this up, kid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I've, I've learned how to, how to, how to write, uh, get out of my, my trained writing and learn how to, how to really touch the heart and really uh, uh, hit points in, a, in, in our correspondence that would appeal to people and what they are interested in. Now, the marketer in me just loves that aspect and touching the heartstrings and really telling the story. 
But I have to say, there must be something to the lawyer side of you because this is one of the most effective and efficiently run nonprofits I've ever seen. What is your secret sauce to that? <laughs> I don't think there is a secret sauce. I, I was lucky to come from a business background. I, I um, In the course of being in the Air Force, the Air Force sent me to Georgetown to get my master's in economics, and then I also picked up an MBA. So I had the accounting side and the legal side, and I had run my own business. And I, I know that, you know, it, even though this is a, this is motivated by the heart, you have to use general business principles to make your organization work, and you have to try to be as efficient and effective as possible. So I think my, my business background helped me to keep us on, 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 a steady, on a steady course financially, though I will have to say for the first four or five years, it was pretty much, uh, it was pretty much touch and go because you, you're trying to build a, a donor base and you're trying to build a track record and you're trying to attract donors but uh, it, all at once, and it's a it's a catch twenty two. You don't you may not have done a lot, and then so people don't know who you are, and and but, but you don't have a long track record. So it comes easier the more you start doing things, and if you can struggle those first couple of years and build a track record, you can you can eventually right the ship, so to speak, financially. <laughs> well, just to really drive home how effective this organization is now. And obviously a lot has to do with your dedication to those business principles, to taking that kind of lawyer side of the brain and applying it. You have seven staff. Out of your entire operating budget, your programs, all those expenses, less than 2% of your total expenses went to administrative and fundraising. That's kind of unheard of in the nonprofit space. Well, there, it's we, we are proud of it. Uh, we... Um, we are fortunate to have a lot of revenue come in from from uh, medical suppliers and medicines that we get from the pharmaceutical companies through our nonprofit partners. And so a good portion of our revenue that comes in is from the in what we call in-kind donations. So that helps us. And of our seven of our seven staff, we only have four full time, three are part time. So that helps also. Wow. Yeah, that even drives it home more. Now, I really want to dive in into the work that IRT does, and you guys have such a broad breadth of the things that you do. Today, we're really going to narrow in and focus on disaster relief. So I'm curious, how did you initially get started in the disaster relief area? Well, the first disaster that we responded to was um, Hurricane uh, Gilbert back in back in, uh, in Jamaica. We sent medical teams to Jamaica after Hurricane Gilbert ravaged um, Jamaica, and then we then uh, Hurricane Gilbert came across into the Yucatan, and uh, it hit Cancun. I don't know if you remember back in '88, it really wiped so, out. Uh, I think we're going to date me here a little bit. Okay, I was really, really, really small back in 1988. Uh, well, I was really, really, really young back in 1988, <laughs> also. But but anyway, in we did we sent construction teams to help. Um, the people that worked at the hotel when, when, when Cancun shut down, all these Mexican people who worked at the, at the hotels, all these laborers didn't have a place to live because they used to live at the hotels. So hotels were shut down. So we ended up building them temporary shelters in the Yucatan. So that was, that was our first disaster response. And then in December of 88 was when the Armenian earthquake, and that was our first major international 
disaster response when we took over a large medical team into Armenia. And that was very historic because that was during the, the time in which there was a detente. And, and, and because Gorbachev had been here in the United States, at the time of the disaster, he allowed Americans for the first time to go into the Soviet Union as a large group and to provide disaster relief. Wow, that's really monumental. Yeah. Oh, now digging into the disaster relief, looking through your guys' approach, there are three different areas. You have the acute stage of survival, the intermediate stage of sustaining life and survivors, and then the final stage of recovery, where you rebuild homes and restoring livelihoods. Can you walk us through some of the efforts that go into that first stage survival? Yeah, the, the, key, the key stages in a, in a, in a disaster especially during the acute stages, you know, how severe is the disaster? Are there, are there local resources sufficient to manage various stages of disaster? Um, that's very important because you want to gear your efforts toward their holes, to their needs. And sometimes their medical, their medical um, community may be able to handle the medical side, but maybe what they need is supplies. And other times, like in a Haiti where the country had very little infrastructure at all, and the whole the whole the whole country was basically down. You have to come in with with your personnel, and you have to bring in your medical supplies, and then you have to sustain your teams while you're in there because there's very little available in the country to to sustain. So that's that's pretty much a a, a very harsh and very um, uh, severe type of disaster. But the other major point that people don't realize is that you also the affected country has to ask for international aid. You know, we're not cowboys. They have to actually ask for international help. And that's a real key component. And then, of course, as I said, we have to decide uh, where we can make the greatest impact. And that will determine a lot of what our response is going to be. Another key question that we ask ourselves are we during, a, during the acute stage of a disaster is, do we have any pre-existing partnerships with local organizations or with other international organizations? And that is a very, very important and very uh, advantageous situation to be in is when you have existing partnerships in a country where you can tap into them immediately because uh, communication is very, very difficult in terms of Things are constantly changing. What's the accurate situation, especially during the acute stage? What is needed and what is the actual situation in the ground? So those are very much the key questions that we ask and then decide exactly what is going to be our response based upon the answers to those key questions. I love this term that you brought up. We're not cowboys. Now, I guess it never occurred to me that countries might not ask for international aid during a disaster. What are kind of the factors that impact whether or not they ask? Sometimes it's national pride. Just to give you an example, um, in Japan, during the, the Fukushima a nuclear disaster, they allowed international aid, but they only allowed it in a way in which we could purchase things locally inside Japan. I think they didn't want to, didn't want the world to see all this foreign aid coming into what they consider themselves to be a first world country. So there are some political considerations that are, are that sometimes um, put limitations on your ability to respond. For instance, we had a whole shipment of medicines that we had donated to us and we had 
on the pond airways had volunteered to take our shipment of medicines to japan but because it was coming in from the outside the japanese government didn't allow it to come to come in so what we had to do is actually purchase inside the country which doesn't give you the leverage that you get with uh with bringing in supplies from the outside especially if you get in-kind donations from other suppliers exactly we basically had a free shipment of about a million dollars worth of medicines that we could have brought over there but then so that our donors we could stretch our donors uh donations to support this relief effort but when you have to buy dollar for dollar inside a country it kind of dilutes and minimizes the amount of, of of impact you can make. Wow, there's so many different factors that you have to navigate as you reach out globally and try to administer aid and do some of those relief efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, then the situation sometimes is is compounded by the damage in the country. For instance, in in Haiti, the the, the airport was was damaged. So we couldn't get in directly into uh, by flying in aid or, or or our volunteers. The port was damaged, so you couldn't send in shipments. We had to come in through the Dominican Republic, which had its own little problems of having to get across the border and to negotiate with the Dominican uh, Republic government to make sure that there would be no tariffs or duties or any kind of holdups at the borders in getting across into Haiti. So sometimes you have these these geopolitical issues that that override um, direct response and make it make direct response more uh, more difficult. Uh, we always have this adage in the business, and we all use the expression: "No good deed goes unpunished." Yeah, definitely a lot to kind of navigate, and really interesting components where you would think. I mean, I guess it just would never occur to me that it might be so challenging in such a devastating situation to send efforts. Yes, really eye opening. It 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 all the every disaster is different. You can't apply a cookie cutter repro, uh, approach because the situations in the country. For instance, in Haiti, we had pre existing partners, but they were uh, they were they were down themselves. They were victims of the disaster themselves. So we couldn't tap into them right away. So we 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 our efforts were combined with other international uh, agencies that were coming into Haiti. And it wasn't until about a month later that when our local partners, our Haitian partners, were back online that we could work with them during the um, uh, intermediate and recovery stage of the disaster. Wow, you guys, that just really brings full circle how comprehensive and how extensive your efforts are and how immediate you can respond once you have that permission and once you're able to navigate some of the different political aspects. You have money, you have volunteers, you have supplies, you have medical trainings. This is no small feat. No, no, it isn't. And, and, and of course, if you can have a local partner, and we always look for that, if you have a pre-existing relationship and you can work through that local uh, effort, you can stretch your dollar, your, don- your, your donations a lot further if you don't have to send in volunteers. So we try to look at where we can get the greatest impact and what, where, um, whether we have these pre-existing relationships uh, with organizations that haven't been victimized themselves by the disaster. Interesting. Now, I'd love to shift to that second area, the intermediate stage of sustaining life and survivors. Can you give us a snapshot of what that stage looks like? That is 
that can happen within days after the disaster. In our own country, it happened right after Katrina, where we had all the people that had evacuated from the coast and now were up in uh, around Natchez, Mississippi. It was just all these evacuees. And we sent in medical teams not to treat the injured, but to provide health maintenance to people who had been separated from their medicines, from their doctors, people with chronic disease, heart problems, diabetes. We had to sustain them, and we set up right near a Red Cross Center and provided medical assistance to the evacuees that were at the that the uh, Red Cross Center that was providing uh, temporary lodging to these people. That's That's an example of what you would do on the medical side of an intermediate stage. In the tsunami in Sri Lanka, the intermediate stage consisted of getting in tents, tarps, cooking utensils, um, uh, food, water. In other words, you're sustaining those that have survived the disaster but are now displaced. And so that is another example of, of what you're dealing with. You're really dealing with people, with survivors who have been displaced and how do you sustain them both medically and and physically during that stage before they can return and get in back into their shelters and back into their livelihoods. Man, disaster relief is such a comprehensive space. I mean, and it makes perfect sense. You have this whole population that's displaced and those little things that you wouldn't even think of are your heart medication, just those daily things that you need and you no longer have access to. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 what happens in the, and disasters are different. You know, an earthquake is a different disaster than, let's say, a hurricane. Um, in in Mississippi, after being there for about five or six days, all the evacuees wanted to return to the coast. They wanted to see it was a natural response. They wanted to see if their homes were were how badly were they damaged and what would they have to do. So we, our medical teams, just followed them down to the coast and through. Um, and through a partnership uh, with Volunteers for America, we, we, we basically manned their mobile clinics down in Mississippi for the next three months, providing medical assistance, a lot of which was wound suture and tetanus shots because a lot of these people were crawling through their, their, oh. their rub rubble trying to clean up their homes and were stepping on nails, um, were getting cut. Um, just just those kinds of injuries, and of course, providing them with their uh, medical chronic medications that they needed. So sometimes you you are um, your location is determined by what the population this this displaced population does. And so in our case, we just went down with them back to the back to the coast and and set up on the coast for three months as far as providing medical assistance, health maintenance. Well, that really walks into the next next stage, which is recovery, which is rebuilding homes and restoring livelihoods. That is the longest stage. That is the stage that can take years and years, even when it's out of the news, that stage is going on. For instance, in Mississippi, um, I'll go back to Katrina, because after November, you know, the, the hurricane hit in August, Hurricane Katrina. Uh by the end of November, we started our reconstruction phase of, of helping those 
people that were victimized by the disaster, helping them get back into their homes, especially those that were not, that could not afford to get back into their homes. And we were lucky to work with uh, the United Methodist uh, Conference of the Mississippi Conference. They do great work, and they have been our longtime partner. The the the, the United Methodists under UNCOR have been longtime partners for domestic disasters. And we like about them is that they do case management. They provide, they, they, the people that come for aid or ask for assistance, they have to disclose financially. So we know that their records have been disclosed. They've been vetted. They've been put through the system. They've been case managed. And we know that if we're working on a home, we're truly working with a family that could not recover financially on their own. And that's very important to us because we don't want to waste resources helping somebody that could recover on their own or we're scamming the system. And that's very important to have those kinds of partners that can do that active case management where we can come in and actually do the, the volunteer labor, the labor that they couldn't afford to hire. I love that you're emphasizing partnerships so much and that the partners give you the ability to do things so much faster, so much more efficiently. And that really is part of that secret sauce that we kind of skirted around a little bit at the beginning of how you guys were able to do things so fast, get things done, and know that you're driving in your impact in the areas that are most needed. In order to stay in a, in a situation like a Katrina, or as we are now doing in New Jersey with uh, Superstorm Sandy, our team leaves tomorrow to go back right after the snowstorm, and they're going to be they're going to be working for a week and we're going to continue to send these teams because there's still 10,000 families that are out of their homes from Superstorm Sandy. The same thing in Katrina. We ended up we ended up rebuilding or repairing 219 homes. We used over 600 volunteers. Um, we had 38 construction teams, 12 medical teams. It takes time and it takes the it takes funding to continue that. And what we have found is that we have to we have to be careful not to use all our money during the acute stage because it's very hard when you get into the recovery stage when the press is no longer or the media is no longer focusing on the disaster to raise money because most Americans feel that the situation is solved because they no longer see it in the news. So it's very important then from a from a planning standpoint to to get your money raised in the first couple of weeks or months of a disaster so that then you can sustain, you can stay in all three stages of the disaster and, and into, into a long range recovery, which is the, which is, I said, the hardest and the longest of the, of the stages. I'm so glad that you're talking about Hurricane Sandy because when this episode airs, I will actually be on one of those trips in New Jersey, helping with those recovery efforts. So can you kind of explain to our audience a little bit about what I'm going to be doing while I'm there? What you're going to be doing is you're, you are going to be probably working at a home, usually uh, probably either a low-income family or an elderly family living on fixed income. This family now has, will have been out of their homes for over three years. In fact, um, one of the families we just worked on recently they had uh, it was an elderly couple. He had worked on the uh, Verrazano Bridge, and he and he was a, a welder, and he was also working on the uh, on the Amex building. But he fell when he was on the Amex building. Luckily, he survived the fall, but he was medically retired. 
And when they were living in Egg Harbor, New Jersey, and when the and when the storm hit, they evacuated to their uh, daughter's house in up in uh, northern New Jersey. But they had another daughter over in Staten Island and a son in Brooklyn. And so for the last three years, they've been spending time shuttling between their three children's homes while they're waiting for somebody to come in and repair their home. We had to rebuild their home from scratch. And so I can't tell you exactly, Alexandra, whether you'll be rebuilding a home from scratch or doing repairs, but I, I will tell you this, you'll be working on a home probably of uh, definitely of somebody either low income who couldn't recover from themselves for themselves or an elderly couple living on fixed income, most likely social security. And um, I hope you get to see the homeowner and get to talk with them because it's amazing to watch the transformation of their spirit just as you, uh, when, as, as our team comes in and actually starts working on their home because they've been waiting so long. Um, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a process that you will enjoy watching their spirits being lifted the further and further you get along in, in the recovery and in the, in the rebuilding of their home. Well, listeners, I'm going to remind you guys to tune in Friday because I'm going to have an episode with me in New Jersey working on this home. And I'm thrilled. And luckily, I'm bringing along my uh, construction uh, career husband who will know a little bit more about what he's doing and can monitor me with the hammer. Um, now, Barry, you guys have been sending teams on a regular basis out there. Can you tell us about the frequency of these trips that you send? Every other month, we send a team for one week. Uh, we leave on a Sunday and come back on a Sunday. And we will continue to do that throughout this year and hopefully into next year because I doubt that the situation will be rectified fully this year. Um, we, you know, we're down to 10,000 families, but that's still a lot of families. And of course, we're not the only group going in there and working with our partners. There are groups coming in every week. We're just part of the process. But what they like about us is that we're one of the most skilled teams that come in there. And we, we try to have our teams being at least 65 to 70% skilled labor. But you do need uh, other people who are unskilled to uh, to work with the skilled people, you know, as we AKA call it. A.K.A. me. A.K.A. you, right. <laughs> you know, okay, Alexandra, hold that here. Okay, hammer here. Uh, go get that. You know, there. I'm going to be doing of... all the grunt work is what you're telling me, right? Well, you're... <laughs> Well, actually, you will learn a lot. We have had women who have gone on this team and other men who are non-skilled. And by going regularly, they have picked up construction skills. We no longer classify them as helpers, but now call them handymen because they have learned enough whereby they can work unsupervised. And uh, we, have a, we have a group of women who refuse to let the men even work with them. They, they have their they, – they run the, the – the, um, the uh, drywall guns and they put up drywall and it's just amazing to watch these women who initially when they came with us didn't have any construction skills and now they're one of our most skilled group of uh, uh, sub teams. Well watch out positive impact community. I'm going to be a very skilled handy woman. Yeah. You know I'll be building my own houses soon and 
you know, just minor supervision from my husband who makes sure they don't fall down. <laughs> Are we creating a monster here? Uh, possibly. Um, it'll be really fascinating to go through it as a married couple. Yes. And probably a reminder that someday we will be buying a, a turnkey house and not building our own. <laughs> now, one of the great things about this is that you guys actually have return volunteers who go trip after trip after trip. How do you develop that relationship with your volunteers? Well, you know what? In, in the area of the construction teams, it's very interesting to watch the dynamic of these people because what um, they build social relationships with one another. You know, you you sleep you sleep together. Usually, you're sleeping in a, in a in a church um, or in a in a community center. Um, you get you eat together, you work together, and you build these social bonds whereby they want to come back and work together on a future trip. So we find that our volunteers are our best ambassadors for, for bringing in other people to help work with us. And, uh, and so a lot of them, as you say, do repeat over and over again. We've had, like in Katrina, I think a couple of our volunteers went 16, 17 times. And, 16 uh, or 17 times? Because these are right. week-long trips. These are week-long trips. Ooh. Exactly. Now, to our listeners, you do not have to volunteer 16 or 17 weeks to get involved with this organization. My husband and I are actually just doing a one-week commitment, and then hopefully a couple more in the future someday. <laughs> now, the other thing that I found really interesting is that I was informed that we will be some of the youngest volunteers on the trip by several, several years. What age ranges are most of your volunteers? It depends. Our medical volunteers uh, run the gamut. Um, they will be anywhere from um, in their 30s all the way into their 60s, depending on what their jobs are. Uh, if they are going in disaster relief during the acute stage, I would say they would tend to be in the 30s and 40s because of the um, the, the stamina that you need in, a, in an acute stage of a disaster and, and the harsh living conditions you might be under uh, because of the disaster. Um, if you're going to train, like we have a, a national training program in Vietnam we were, where we're trying to lower uh, neonatal death, which is death that occurs between zero and 28 days of life, um, they can be of any age. And we have generally older more experienced trainers that go to uh, a Vietnam. In our construction teams, we generally find the age range to be between 50 and 65 to 70 for our skilled volunteers because they're the ones that have been established and they have time to, to give up some, some time. They might be recently retired or they might still be in work, but at least in a supervisory position where they can pull away. And then we have a lot of our unskilled or uh, volunteers are coming are of a younger age and they're either, they could be as, we've had college graduates on our team, just recent college graduates. And so I would tend to say that uh, those are the kind of the ranges, but we accept people of all ages. We, we basically don't look at the age, we look at the skill level and try to get the composite skill level on each team that we need. And sometimes we will hold off a helper and say, no, we have too many helpers on this team. We, you have to wait for our next team. We need, we, we need to fill that spot with a skilled volunteer. 
Well, I am glad that we are going to be bringing both a skilled and unskilled, as well as a younger demographic to the trip in New Jersey. It's important to our growth and to our longevity to have younger people come on the team. Very much so. Well, I am so excited to share my insights from when I get to be on one of these incredible trips. Barry, thank you so much for that insight. Are you ready for some rapid fire? Sure. The rapid fire is one of my all-time favorite parts of the show, and I think it's just because of those adventures we get to talk about, like shark diving. How many guests have we had that have gone shark diving? Absolutely incredible. But before we dive into that, I wanted to share a quick insight from this incredible event called Journey to Social Entrepreneurship, which was all about focusing in and channeling the power of service to fuel powerful social enterprises. So that insight was all about asking permission. Sometimes we wait too long to act, almost waiting for the world to give us the okay. K-Tech, a founder, describes a pivotal moment in his journey where he could either move forward or ask permission. If you're at a point in your life where you're ready to activate and you're ready to move forward, then this event is for you. Unlock all 20 recordings at journeytosocialentrepreneurship.com slash live. That includes some incredible founders like Three Twins Ice Cream, Cooley Cooley, Sponsor Change, My Ed Match, and more. And with that, I think we're ready for a dose of adventure. Life is a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion you've been on? Well, you know, it's it's really funny, Alexandra. Sometimes I go to such interesting places that sometimes I'll I will stay and do something in the country and take and take a little bit of a. That's where the balance comes in. Where actually I'm in, like in Vietnam. I um, after we finished two weeks of training, my wife came over and we went out uh, to Ha Long Bay and spent three days out on the bay, which is a, which is a, you know one of the. Uh, it's it's not a it's a World Heritage site and it's uh, and it was fantastic and 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 I sometimes I will take advantage of where my work takes me and enjoy an excursion that comes about through being in that uh, in that country at that time and so it would be almost i mean to not would just be such a crime (laughs) and a lot of our volunteers do the same Uh, i know that the ones that go to vietnam a lot of times they will they will stay in in either in Vietnam or go over to Thailand or Cambodia and visit, you know, the, the temples over there. Uh, a couple of our volunteers went on to New Zealand and Australia afterwards. So it is, it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a, it, what it is, is taking advantage of the opportunity when you're in a certain locale of the world to see some of the, just uh, to, to do some excursions that will, that will take you to places that you never would have been before. Many social entrepreneurs find solace and tranquility in the outdoors. Have you found this to be true in your work? Well, I live in San Diego, so this is such an outdoors time that uh, an outdoor city. So I'm I'm really enjoying. You know, I've lived here now for almost forty years. Um, I I like to hike. I mean, taking a walk on the beach when, um, is one of my favorite things to do, and hear the ocean waves, and it it does give me a, a solace, uh, and it allows me to think. Um, I, I like outdoor exercise myself. I play tennis. I masquerade as a tennis player. Masquerade as a tennis player. That is a awesome phrase. (laughs) Two, two to three times a week. 
and uh, and I like to ski, and I love being in the outdoors when I'm still trying to ski at my age. And um, my brother, I have a brother who lives up in Utah, so I go up and ski sometimes with him. And and uh, I love the outdoors, and I do find that the outdoors helps regenerate my spirit, and I, I enjoy. I'm glad I'm in a city that can allow for a lot of outdoor outdoor activity most 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 months of the year. I do have to say, San Diego has some incredible outdoor activities. I was about to call you out, though. Skiing is not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad that you retreat to Utah. Uh, You know, Idaho grown. I I know what great skiing looks like. And yes, Utah. Utah has some great skiing. (laughs) Can you describe a time when you were able to have boots on the ground and really see the impact of your work in action? Well, the most recent one was when we were, I went to New Jersey last summer and, uh, I watched the uh, I watched the construction team build a ramp for a woman who has a form of muscular dystrophy and she was bed she's bedridden and her lifeline is getting to specialized treatment in uh in Philadelphia at a at, at a special hospital that deals with people with her kinds of disease and she has a lot of autoimmune diseases and we built a ramp. They first tried to take her out of the home in a chair and it it she couldn't leave the she she got so much damage from the bouncing down of the chair of the chair on the steps that she could not um she could not do it again. She was basically bedridden for months where she couldn't even sit up in bed. She was so damaged. So our team came in and built her a ramp. Now, this was a home that was damaged by Superstorm Sandy pretty badly. Uh, the kitchen had been had been damaged. The bedroom had been damaged. In fact, she told me that when the storm hit, uh, a neighbor's son came over and moved her into the living room where it wasn't leaking, and she had to had to lay there in the living room for 17 hours until the until EMT could could reach her. And she had a very uh, traumatic experience during Sandy. But now with this ramp, she has been getting regular treatment for her disease in 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 Philadelphia at this hospital. And she says the ramp has just opened up her life in terms of her and her hope in terms of getting uh, treatment for this disease. She's a 75-year-old woman. She's a remarkable lady. In fact, I just talked to her last week. And what's amazing about her spirit is that she's always asking me, what are you doing in the world? What are you doing to help those people? What are you doing to help the Syrian refugees? She's always outer directed for a woman with her kinds of disease and limitations. Her spirit, she's an inspiration to me. She really is. If that doesn't drive home the impact of your work, I don't know what does. Such an incredible story. We talked a lot about when you were first getting IRT off the ground and we talked about that it's a little bit of a roller coaster and sometimes you make great strides and other times there's challenges. What was your favorite mistake? <laughs> well, my favorite mistake, and this is the one my wife reminds me of all the time, is that we had our medical training program over in Lithuania in the late 90s. And um, we were teaching doctors and nurses, again, uh, neonatology. You know, they had the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was an opportunity to to bring doctors and nurses in former socialist uh, Soviet socialist republics out of their 50 years of medical isolation. And so we established a number of programs over in Latvia, Lithuania, and Romania, Romania at the time. 
Well, there I am in Lithuania, really wrapped up into the training, and it's going great. And, of course, I was I was going to leave a couple of days before the team. I go to the airport to fly home, and they tell me, your flight was yesterday. Oh! And, and this is the this is the late 90s and you know communication isn't as great with cell phones as it was then my wife had already gone down to the airport as i found out waiting for me to arrive i don't show up she has no idea where i am and uh because she was expecting me a day early she was right i was wrong and so there i am at the airport trying to see when i can get out and so I get out the next day. Luckily, I was able to get out the next day because sometimes in international flights, as you know, it's hard. Once you miss a flight, it's like three or four days before you can get out. So anyway, I, she reminds me of that regularly of my big faux pas in not watching my schedule and uh, staying on top of it. And so I, I, ended up, I ended up getting home a day late and my wife was not very happy with me because she didn't know whether I was alive or dead. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to side with your wife on this one. Um, that would be a pretty dramatic situation. Yeah. Oh. What book do you recommend to others who want to make a socially minded impact? Oh, the last book I read was a book by a priest named Greg Boyle. He is he runs Homeboy Industries up in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've heard about it, but the book is entitled Tattoos on the Heart. And what he does is he works with kids who are in gangs. And he also works with offenders, young offenders who have been in prison, who are coming out of prison. And he has, um, it's called Homeboy Industries is what the, the, the charity that he runs. And he tries to give these boys an, and, these, and, and these gang members, both, both women, men and women, an opportunity to get out of the gang structure uh, and get into, get into industries that will provide them with living uh, and and as an alternative to gang membership, and after I read that book and seeing some of the victories and defeats he's had with with uh, some of the kids he worked with who got murdered uh, somewhere along the lines, uh, got who didn't quite make it out, and some of the victories he had, it, it's 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 so real and it's so compelling. I was I was so taken by the book and his courage to stay in there among. Among the slow gains, as we say in this business, in this business, it's small victories, small victories. And um, I think that uh, reading that book was very inspiring. And um, I, I recommend it to anyone who wants to really truly understand how difficult it is to turn lives around, regardless of whether they be here or in other parts of the world. Such a compelling book. I have to admit, I haven't heard of it, but I am looking forward to adding that one to my list. Barry, is there a mantra or a motto that guides forward your work with IRT? Well, I think my, uh, my role model was Mother Teresa from the standpoint that um, I always admired her and I had had the opportunity to meet her in Armenia in a very uh, impromptu way. Whoa, uh, you got to meet Mother Teresa? Yes. And I have a picture on my wall with me shaking hands with Mother Teresa in Armenia. I was happily, you know, we had a surgical team that was doing uh, work in the, in the hospital and I was carrying up supplies and we had a surgical tent downstairs where all our medical supplies were kept and I just schlepped them up to the to the operating room. And as I came down to pick up some supplies, this little car comes pulling up and out pops Mother Teresa. And I walked over to her and 
and and I and I and I got to meet her, and she said, "Thank you for coming." And I just go, "Boy, why is she thanking me for coming?" You know, and um, and and she was she was very special, and I've always admired her from afar, and uh, that was a very special thing. So she's sort of a kind of a, a person I. I you know, even though she's passed on, I, I've read her books and I've, uh, and, and I like, I like her, I like her, I like her message and I like her, I like her spirituality. And so she's kind of one of my role models. I think from a standpoint, even though we're not a faith-based organization, I'd like to believe that a lot of us who work at IRT are faith motivated. That's I'd love, I'd like to say. And I, the Bible verse that always gets to me that keeps me going is, is Matthew 25 when, when uh, I'm a Christian and Jesus says, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And he's talking to these people who have just, you know, the elect. And he says, and they ask him, when did I do this for you, Lord? And he says, when you did it for the least of these, my brethren. And that is something to me that, that I think of all the time is that, um, through my faith, I'm called to help the least of these brethren and, and, and anybody who's in need, we have to open up our hearts to. And, and I try to use that as my guiding force in terms of my own personal response to everything that I come across. Um, and I try to use it in my own personal life, even with the homeless guys right near our office here. I, I try to remember that, um, that uh, we have to reach out to the least of the least of our society, to those that are down and out, and I use that as my mantra. Wow, what an inspirational and compelling mantra that was spurred by meeting Mother Teresa. I can't even imagine what a unique and incredible opportunity. I'm just I'm just going to sit over here in disbelief for a couple of minutes, so don't mind me. Okay. Our final question, what advice do you give to our listeners who want to make a positive impact today? I would say examine your heart to find out what what in the social um, consciousness, social justice area, what what uh, what appeals to you? What where do you want to make a mark um, in terms of helping others less fortunate and then Find that charity that might be local that that fits that uh, desire of your heart, and then get involved, volunteer, do something. I tell a lot of people, especially young people. There's so many people that are trying to find themselves, and they they sometimes turn too much inward, you know, in terms of trying to figure themselves out. And I always say, if you want to find yourself, go do something in service of others. That's the way to find yourself. And I would say that to anyone uh, to if get take a step, get involved. I've told people that have asked me, people coming out of college, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I always say to them, just keep moving forward. Doors open, doors close. You just you just keep on going forward and you and let life let opportunities come to you. You know, I mean, things will happen as long as you keep moving forward, whether it be in education, whether it be in jobs trying different things, just don't go inert and you will find maybe what your life's calling is as you move along. I mean, I'm a perfect example. I mean, I've had three distinct careers. Um, and I, I'd have to say that 
this last career is the one that I could say, aha, I think this is where I was supposed to be. This is where it is for me. Barry, you have been such an inspiring guest today. Thank you so much for joining us. Now that all of our listeners are just completely inspired by your efforts and moved to get involved with IRT, how do they learn more about your organization? Well, they can go online to www.irteams.org. We are redoing our website. We're going to have a new one up in about a month. But uh, you can look at our current website if you want to get involved as a volunteer. There is a volunteer application that you can fill out online, and uh, we will we will uh, receive that application and try to put you into into something that works for you. And you guys could be like me and headed to New Jersey for an inspiring and just incredible opportunity to help with the recovery efforts there. Barry, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Alexandra. It was really a pleasure. Well, movers and shakers, I hope you enjoyed that in-depth look at disaster relief around the world. I know that I personally have a much better appreciation for what those efforts look like. And also, join us on Friday as we go inside to the efforts in New Jersey as myself and my husband are there for a week working on rebuilding one of those homes. It's going to be an adventure, and I can't wait to share the insights with you. For all of the resources and some great photos from IRT efforts, head on over to positiveimpactpodcast.com slash IRT. We're going to have some compelling insights, and hey, you never know, we might have a couple little bonus features from my time in New Jersey. You'll just have to check it out. If you're looking for a free audio download, thanks to Audible, of Tattoos from the Heart, or any of the guest recommendations that we've had thus far, head on over to positiveimpactpodcast.com slash goodreads to get two free audio downloads. We'll also have that information on the show notes page. Until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place. Music